Hello everyone and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. We are delighted to be here with you today to give a review of a new mystery novel. Most recently, myself and Josh took you through the strokes of K.W. Jeter's cyberpunk thriller noir. And today, boy, we've got a different ride for you, that's for sure. Talk about genre literary whiplash. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say uh, yes, indeed. Happy to be here, Scott. It's been really busy at work and life recently, so it's nice to sit back and talk about our favorite subject, which is mystery novels. One of our favorite mm-hmm. subjects, anyways. One of our favorite subjects, yeah. And we'll take this little privileged moment and corner of our lives to uh, to celebrate literature and uh, to thank everybody for joining us. We know there's lots of things tearing at your attention these days, but yeah... Uh, it is good to be back. You're absolutely right. Um, we did most recently, Josh, have a look at K.W. Jeter's Noir, which both of us found a very complex, challenging read, but a, a worthwhile adventure. I really enjoyed doing that. Having not read it in 20 years, it was fun to come at it with the lens of uh, of our podcast, you know. And then most recently, I suppose, um, if we move away from the big reads and we get to the uh, the sideshow, we had a, a episode of LTP Noir on The Blue Dahlia. That's right. The Blue Dahlia is considered one of the classic noirs of the period of 41 to 58 as the Hollywood, as I guess classical Hollywood film scholar canon attests. So I had to check that out. And of course, we have the involvement of Raymond Chandler. So that was a plus for that. And yeah, that was cool. A couple of, th- yeah. So I, I did an episode on that. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm, I'm playing with my format, trying different things to see, you know, what feels best to me. And I think I'm working towards something that I'm starting to enjoy. Uh, The first two episodes were sort of experimenting. And then the third episode was also experimenting in formats, bringing in uh, a guest as well. I did mention in the podcast that I will be looking at more of the uh, Lad and Lake pairings, particularly uh, this Gun for Hire and the Glass Key in particular, because they are also considered canon noirs. So I will be looking at them. And so in preparation for that, I uh, recently read the autobiography of Veronica Lake. Now, in the episode, I said that Lake was four foot nine, and there has been reports of her being that tall. Some also saying like four foot ten, some saying five foot two. Well, Miss Lake herself says she's five two, so I just want to correct it. If that's what Miss Lake says, <laughs> then I'm going to say it's five two. Although I detect a little bit of embellishment on some parts, but. You know, that's what well, of that's what that writer's prerogative. That's what they do. But she was also a character in herself. So uh, I'll be able to apply some of the knowledge that I, ga- I gleaned from that autobiography into further podcasts. So it should be fun to bring that in there. And it's a great ground level perspective on the Hollywood film industry at the time as well. Mm-hmm. So you'll see it, seeing it through her eyes and what, you know, how the industry works in terms of the good and the bad. Uh, it should be really interesting to apply to future episodes. Uh, it's going to be good to uh, to get a couple of those because we are going to take a break here on the main show for a few weeks. We're gonna we're gonna be back in November. We think November uh, with uh, some new reads. We've got lots of reading lined up. Uh, now, whether we want to call this the end of a season or uh, just kind of the 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 mid season hiatus, um, so, you know, since we did the Holmes and since we did the Chandler, our shows kind of evolved more towards this just this kind of survey of lit. And I really like that. You know, we started with the whole first novel idea, but now with the Christie, we're doing something a little bit different. 
Because looking at the body in the library, we're not going back to the first marble. We've decided instead, let's just try a sample of something, you know, popular and something that's there. So I like kind of where we're going with the show. It's, I mean, you talk about finding formats and testing things out. Um, this third season, if indeed we can call it a season, started with the idea of doing first novels by a bunch of different mystery writers. And then we quickly turned into like a smorgasbord, kind of like a, a potpourri of mystery yeah. stories, random things that we've inserted, and it's been really fun. So um, my vote, and I think the listener as well, would uh, would quite prefer us to keep keep going with just this uh, literary sampler of mystery stories instead of feeling ourselves connected to must-reading the first of a, of a writer's work, you know? Exactly. And since we've already, you know, delved into cyberpunk, we may also go in outside of the mystery novel as well. Like, we might even look at some nonfiction, <clears throat> whichever floats our boat, and we want to make the show interesting, because Lighting the Pipes is not just novels. Lighting the Pipes is an act of leisure. And even though it has, you know, the iconography of either noir or of the mystery novel, detective fiction, we also want to attribute that, you know, you can light a pipe to any kind of literature. So we're not going to shake off our detective and detective mystery costume anytime soon. No, uh, I just think we're we're going to try to find ways Definitely to bring not. in other reading to fit our M.O. Yeah. Now, speaking exactly. of M.O.s. Exactly. Um, a protagonist, Josh, in this story is uh, is an interesting figure. And to our listeners, <laughs> yes. I'm sure Miss um, Marple is not a, a new discovery. But for us, outside of the television productions, she was she was for me a, a new literary discovery. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear what you think. And I'm sure our listeners are keen for us to get on with things. But seeing as this is our first time looking at Agatha Christie. It's important, I think, that we offer a little bit of our fast facts feature. Quote, unquote, a little bit, quote, unquote, fast. But I'll begin. (laughs) All right. So... Just starting off, The Body in the Library, the book in question today, and this episode, was first published in February 1942 in the U.S. by Dodd, Mead & Company. And then it was published uh, by Collis Crime Club in the U.K. in May 1942. So it seems the Americans Mm. had Agatha Christie before the British did, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, but there's precedent for that, though, because... Because Holmes stories also had the same sort of thing, you know, like uh, uh, Collins. But the UK release was usually first, right? And then. Not entirely. In the later stories, I know Greenhouse Smith did not have the Holmes story. Um, I I remember that a couple of the Holmes stories went to America first and were published over there beforehand, just because of the advance in some that Conan Doyle received. Interesting. Interesting. The consolation is they both got it in the same year, 1942. So there we go. Now, in her career, Agatha Christie has published 66 novels and 14 short story collections. Uh, her characters are very popular worldwide. We have, of course, the famous Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, and other characters such as Tommy and Twopence. Now, Tommy and Twopence were the subject of her second novel, and they have to do with, a, with like a couple who solves crimes together. She is also the author of the world's longest-running play called The Mousetrap. Mm-hmm. And even on her death, the lights outside the theater were only dimmed. 
So they, uh, so the play still kept going. And even up until COVID-19 pandemic just recently was when they had to briefly close the theater. But uh, from what I understand, it was opened up soon afterwards, as soon as restrictions were lifted, of course. And yeah, she is considered one of the best-selling fiction writers of all time, selling more than 2 billion copies worldwide. She's the most translated author in the world. And one of her novels, and then there were none, that's the title, is also one of the Mm -hmm. top-selling books of all time, with 100 million copies sold, again, worldwide. She was born September 15th, 1890, and died January 12th, 1976. Good old age. Yeah, good old age. Now... Personality-wise, she was an introvert. She was very shy, but not to her friends and family. Despite the often grim nature of her stories and the cynicism towards human behavior that it evoked, Christie was not a misanthrope. She was very religious and a devout member of the Church of England all her life, attending every Sunday. When she and her first husband divorced, she actually stopped taking communion. That's how much she took her vows seriously, as she was ashamed of the divorce. Mm -hmm. And of course, even back then, divorce was even though divorce was allowed, it was it was taken yeah. very seriously, like it was a last resort essentially. Uh, one of her quotes here is that my chief dislikes are crowds, loud noises, gramophones, and cinemas. I dislike the taste of alcohol, and I do not like smoking. I do like the sun, the sea, flowers, traveling, strange foods, sports, concerts, theaters, pianos, and doing embroidery. In terms of writing style, she utilized stereotypes, but her work indicates those biases were positive. On an episode of Desert Island Discs in 2007, author Brian Aldiss maintained that Christie wrote her books up to the very last chapter. She then decided in her story who the most unlikely suspect would be and framed the character by rewriting certain sections. She then decided in her story who the most likely suspect would be and framed that character by rewriting certain sections. She was well aware of the observation that the most unlikely suspect introduced near the beginning usually ended up being the murderer and took this tack to spite those readers. It's kind of the modern day equivalent of when you're watching like a procedural crime show like Castle or something. And it says, oh, it's obviously the guest star. You know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. one of those things that just kind of pervades the mystery genre, book or film or TV. Was was that consistent, Josh, with and across all of her fictional characters, like Marple, Poirot, and the couple you mentioned? Or was that idea of kind of writing the story and then going back to frame the perpetrator, was that something that was only attributable to a certain or a singular character in her oeuvre? No, from what I understand, that's that was what she did for, for Poirot and for Marple. I'm not sure about Tommy and Twopence. I never really looked into that, but I would assume. <laughs> but for those who have read Tommy and Twopence who are listening to this show, let us know it on her Instagram. You know, is is this true? Like, does she did she apply this both to Poirot completely as she does with Marple, and does she do it also with Tommy and Twopence? Let us know. Another element that aided her story was her knowledge of drugs and poison. She served as a volunteer in a hospital for both world wars and developed a strong apothecary background. So much so that a criminal case in the late seventies was solved via the effects of a poison represented in one of her novels the chemist was reading one of her novels and he sort of figured it out that this could possibly be what, mm. what, what caused the murder. So that's, that's kind of cool. cool. And as I mentioned above, you know, when she talks about her chief dislikes and how she liked traveling, for example, she traveled extensively in her childhood, adolescence and adult life. And she was introduced to adult social circles while visiting Egypt with her mother, Clar- Clarissa, 
Later, she would take the Orient Express to Istanbul and then to Baghdad. And this is where she met her second husband, the archaeologist Max Malouin, later Lord Malouin. Mm -hmm. And she would accompany him on his digs. These were useful experiences for her novels, oh, Murder yeah. on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. So that is also part of a key part to her writing as well, is her own personal experiences of where she traveled and her dynamic with upper middle class society as well in England, uh, yeah. which, which yeah. reflects Ford, yeah, she in, was in her writing. She, she was afforded opportunities and many weren't. Yeah. And I mean, she put it to good use. So her maiden name was Miller, and she was born into an upper middle class family of Anglo-Irish descent in Torquay, England, in Devonshire. Now, sidebar, Torquay, England is the community in which Faulty Towers is set. <laughs> <laughs> and she was the youngest of three children. Uh, she was homeschooled most of her childhood and became accomplished in piano and singing. Her life goal was to become either a professional pianist or an opera singer. She started reading at a very young age, four approximately, despite her mother's objection. As she grew up, she moved from Lewis Carroll and gravitated towards detective fiction like Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White, and The Moonstone, and then onto Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. She was also a fond of Alexander Dumas and Charles Dickens, and she wrote amateur plays, poems, and short stories. Always writing. Cool. She lost her father when she was 11 years old. She attended local school in Torquay, but in 1905 was sent to Paris to home her piano playing and voice training. When she returned in 1907, her mother was ailing, and to improve her mother's health, the family took a trip to Egypt. Here, she was introduced to society, attending many dances and social functions in Cairo. When they were back in England in 1908, she grew proficient in writing and performing theatrics. Her first short story, The House of Beauty, as it was called, was completed by the age of 18. This was followed by her first novel, Snow Upon a Desert, which was not published at this time. Her first love was her first husband, and that was Archibald Christie of the Royal Artillery and Royal Flying Corps, whom she met in 1913. At the outbreak of the Great War, in which she served on the home front, Archie and Agatha married on Christmas Eve 1914. While Archie survived the First World War as a colonel in the Air Ministry, Agatha published her first book in 1916, A Mysterious Affair at Styles, introducing the world to her own detective creation, the Belgian Hercule Poirot. It took several rejections from various publishers until on the condition that she changed the ending uh, that John Lay Bodley Head, the publisher, offered to produce it. Mm -hmm. She signed on to a contract of five more books. Agatha and Archie only had one child. Rosalind was born in August 1919. After the war, Archie had left the air ministry and worked in the financial sector with a low salary, one that was compensated by the royalties coming from sales of Christie's books. Her second book, The Secret Adversary, soon followed, introducing Tommy and Twopence, followed by another Poirot adventure. The success of her stories prompted a world tour by her publisher as part of the British Empire Exhibition, taking the Christie's to Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, Canada, and South Africa, where they were the first Brits to stand surfing. So I'm assuming that's like regular surfing. Mm. <laughs> Paddleboard. All seemed to be wine and roses, at least on the surface for Agatha and Archie, until April of 1926, when Clarissa, her beloved mother, passed away. This sent Christie into a depression. She distanced herself from her loved ones while she grieved. Another revelation was that Archie had taken a mistress, perhaps looking for an emotional compensation he was not getting from his wife, or simply being a cad, I'm not certain. And this led to 
Archie asking her for a divorce one fateful weekend, and this led to a terrible row. Archie stormed off, announcing that he would be spending the weekend with friends, but Agatha, something else would happen with her. And this is something that is right out of one of her novels. She suddenly disappeared. The servants could not find her at the house, and to make matters worse, her car was found empty next to a quarry. Not entirely empty, however, there was an expired license, and her clothes were inside the vehicle. The story broke. The newspaper offered a 100-pound reward. Over 1,000 police officers across the country participated in the search, as well as thousands of civilian volunteers. In a rare detective fiction crossover event, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, as we know, became somewhat of a spiritualist in his declining years, asked a medium to take take a reading from a pair of Christie's gloves. Thankfully, she was found 10 days later at a health spa registered under a different name. In fact, she used the surname of Archie's mistress. So what happened? Possibly she was in a fugue state created from her depression and the concept of divorce hitting her, that it came so traumatic to cause amnesia for her. Or it could be attributed to a nervous breakdown. Or it was a publicity stunt for her next book. Conspiracy theories abound to this day. And the greatest theory and most controversial theory of all was that she may have been framing her husband for murder. So take that as you will. To recuperate, she and her daughter went to the Canary Islands, and when she returned, she petitioned for divorce. This leads us to her single life, particularly in 1928, when she met Max Mallowan, the archaeologist, and worked with him on digs in the Middle East. They married in Edinburgh in September 1930, and were married till she died in 1976. They moved to Chelsea in 1934 to Winderbrook House, of which they purchased. This is where she did her writing moving forward. Now, I mentioned that she served as a volunteer for the Red Cross in both world wars. During the Second World War, however, she was investigated by MI5 after a character called Major Bletchley appeared in the novel N or M, which was about a hunt for fifth columnists in war-torn England. Her detail was so Mm -hmm. precise that MI5 suspected her of having a spy at Bletchley Park. Dilly Knox, codebreaker extraordinaire, and an acquaintance of Christie was soon told by Christie herself that it was only a jest. Her train from Oxford to London got stuck at Bletchley for a few hours one day, and she hated every minute of it. And that was her her knock at Bletchley Park and MI5. Hmm. In 1950, she was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and received a CBE in 1956. That's commander of the British Empire. She was knighted as a dame of the British Empire in 73, three years after her husband was knighted. Her last novel was Postern of Fate, which was a Tommy and Twopence story. And she died of natural causes in 76, but may have possibly died of Alzheimer's or dementia. But uh, yeah, she definitely left a Mm -hmm. legacy um, in her life in terms of, you know, she was a mystery writer, but she also had a very interesting life. Uh, So she told, you know, fascinating, intriguing stories about the people around her in her life. But uh, she also led a very bittersweet life full of a lot of ups and downs that uh, I think brought purpose to her writing and was probably inspired some of her writing as well with her own experiences and without a doubt Mm -hmm. left a a lasting legacy in the mystery novel. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would go as far, buddy, as to say that she left more than a legacy within the mystery novel. Here's a little bit of information you might find interesting All with right. Anthony Pratt, who was the, the inventor of the Clue board game, or outside of North America, Cluedo, it's called here in the UK, and I'm sure other things around the world. Um, now, this information I'm going to share with you guys today comes from a few different articles that I have researched. I obviously took a few notes from Wikipedia, but 
good pieces on history.com and mental floss as well have contributed to this so we'll uh, we'll put those into the show notes so that our listeners can check them out but Anthony Pratt was a big fan of Agatha Christie. In particular, he was a big fan of, of this book, The Body in the Library, which we're soon going to get on and review. But I thought this was really cool. Um, Pratt is the guy who patented the game that would go on to become Clue. And I thought, seeing as we're looking at Agatha Christie's Body in the Library, and as there are crossover pieces of biography and publication, that this would be fun for listeners. Um, anyway, Pratt was born in Birmingham, England, August 1903, educated in the city until he left school at the age of 15. He loved chemistry. He really hoped for a career in that science. But um, while he was working as an apprentice to a local chemical manufacturer, he, he did lack the formal training because uh, in school, I think he had quite bad eyesight. At least that's, that's what I understand from a couple of the pieces I read. So he couldn't pursue that as a career. However, he had been trained uh, since a child, really, as a musician, and in particular was a really skilled piano player. So he leaned into his music a little bit more seriously, and he found a variety of fruitful employment that way. Now, between the wars, Pratt earned a living as an itinerant musician for hire, and here's where we get the links to the murder mysteries. He would often play on cruise ships and in hotels. He traveled to New York and Iceland, for instance, but the idea for Clue came from his experiences as musician for private clients throwing parties and country hotels that would host themed murder nights. Now, these often involved paid actors who played alongside hotel guests and were really popular at the time in the 30s and the 40s. The gist was that all of the guests gathered for socializing and dinner, right? They would immediately fall under suspicion once a body was found in one of the rooms of this vast country hotel or wherever it was taking place. And Pratt, accompanying the entertainers and sometimes playing minor roles, was quietly taking notes as he was watching, you know, and thinking about how cool this all was. In full view of their appeal, he combined his notes with his love for mysteries particularly the writings of Agatha Christie and Raymond Chandler, and he set to work recording his ideas onto paper for a table game. Now, while working as a fire warden during the air raids in World War II, Pratt had a lot of time to sit and kind of muse over his ideas for what this board game might become. The publication of The Body in the Library became a catalyst in this process, and in 1943, Pratt and his wife Elva began designing the board game with an aim to see it achieve a patent and get manufactured. On December the 1st, 1944, Pratt filed his original patent for a game called Murder and presented the idea a couple of months later to Norman Watson of Waddington's, the UK's leading games manufacturer. Watson saw the appeal for it right away and agreed to put it into manufacturing after some minor revisions. Among those revisions was the reduction of characters and the change of name to Cluedo, a combination of Clue and Ludo, which was a Latin expression for I play. When manufactured in North America, it would drop all but the first syllable and just gain traction as Clue. Ah. Anyway, yeah. so Watson went to work for the Ministry of Labor after the war, and he helped veterans, both men and women, gain peacetime employment. In 1953... Watson informed Pratt that the game was selling, but it wasn't selling terribly well. He offered him £5,000, which in today's money is about 105000 is what I read, um, for the overseas rights to the game. 
eager for the windfall because it would help him retire, he could buy his wife a new career as a shop owner, and he could also support his new daughter. Pratt agreed to terms for this considerable sum. He and Elva eventually moved to Bournemouth, where they let flats or they rented apartments, while he worked as a solicitor's clerk. After the patent lapsed for Cluedo in 1980, the couple moved back to Birmingham and enjoyed their retirement. And Pratt continued to play music and enjoy mystery stories until his death. Now here's something pretty cool to us, I think, and also anyone listening who is uh, familiar with the game. Pratt's original patent called for 10 characters and additional weapons, including keeping body in the library, front and center, please, a hypodermic syringe. Pratt's earliest ideas for murder implements were sketched by his wife, Elva, who did the artwork for the edition, and they were pretty gruesome. We had an axe, a cudgel, an Irish shillelagh to be exact, a small bomb, a rope, a dagger, a revolver, that hypodermic needle I mentioned, poison, and a fireplace poker. Mm-hmm. Now, the rope, gun, and dagger obviously made it into the final game, along with three other weapons, candlestick, wrench, and a lead pipe. Waddington's streamlined the concept for quicker play, though, by reducing the characters down to six from ten. So in 2013, Jonathan Foster wrote a book on the history of Pratt's invention and what led to the phenomenon of this you know, world's first murder mystery board game, um, which can still be found as a staple in toy stores around the world. And I thought, that's pretty neat. We're here we are reading The Body in the Library, and probably in both of our closets, we've got this board game that's kind of associated with it as well in an interesting sort of way. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering what the original game was like, because I mean, it's almost as if Pratt and his wife came up with almost what you call today a Euro game, which are very complex mm. and have like their 10 characters or more all with, with different things going on. Maybe they made a very complex game that today would be more warmly welcomed than it would back in the yeah, 1940s, so. right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious to see, well, you know, if they ever make like a... Uh, a redo of what the original game was supposed to be like and release that and see, uh, you know, see if that mm. would turn on, you know, like the big tabletop gaming community that I'm happily a part of, you know, just to see I how it would fly. Yeah, Absolutely. I think, I think so, man. I think it would be cool um, because the first, the, the patent for it now, I think would work better than it did then, but also for a family, I can understand reducing 10 to 6, make it a little bit more child-friendly, get rid of the axe and the cudgel, you know, and maybe, although let's face yes. it, I mean, the game, it, it's it's all gruesome in its suggestion, right? The uh, game is gruesome. Just, yeah. A bludgeoning with the poker is terrible, as, as an axe would be. I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. you know, the, but then it could, Clue has had so many different iterations over the years because we've had, um, there's been an Alfred Hitchcock edition, there's been a Star Wars edition, like, it's a game that just keeps kind of evolving with the trends of the time so anyway that's enough on that i didn't know I there was a hitchcock in, version that's cool yeah there is yeah i just thought that on the back of your on the on the back of and and now apparently today's clue is a little bit softer with like social media figures or celebrity figures they're not so aristocratic kind of country manner english folk like they were in the in the original one i mean the original characters dr right. black mr brown mr gold the reverend green miss gray professor plum miss scarlet nurse white mrs silver and colonel yellow i mean they're the original ones and i i think that colonel yellow was turned to colonel mustard if if i recall correctly because yellow was not a term that you would want to associate with a regimented officer, you know, yellow belly yeah, kind of, cowardly. I think that's, yeah, I think that's why they did it. Yeah. Anyway, go check that out, everybody. And, uh, yeah. 
why don't we uh, transition over to your prepared summary on Body in the Library. Woo! Once again, Dame Agatha Christie's fictional and idyllic hamlet of St. Mary's Mead is about to be scandalized with another murder. Tongues will wag, fingers will be pointed, and justice will be done by the most unlikely of agents, or very likeliest of agents, considering this is her fourth go-around and sleuthing, but it is this reader's first. We begin at Gossington Hall, the residence of Colonel Arthur Bantry and his wife, Dolly. They are roused from an early morning slumber by a very hysterical maid. Apparently, there is a body in the library. Indeed, not apparently, there is a body of a dead young woman in the library, lying face down on the hearth rug. The police are summoned, as is another. Dolly Bantry calls on her close friend, Miss Jane Marple, to accompany her as the investigation transpires. The investigation is headed by the chief constable of the county, Colonel Melchett, and his exuberant, ambitious second, the ironically surnamed Inspector Slack. They are present when Marple, an elderly, charming, diminutive spinster, arrives just in time for the examination of the body. The victim is a blonde of the platinum variety, with blue eyes, probably in her late teens. Her face is packed with makeup and distorted, the latter condition probably having something to do with the sash tightened around her throat. Miss Marple is present in the library and makes her own conclusions to Dolly, particularly drawing attention to the poor girl's chewed-down fingernails and that her white evening dress is old and her silver sandals are cheap-looking, not to mention the overabundance of makeup. Let me just take a sidebar here and say for those first-time readers of Miss Marple that we learn through all that follows that her investigatory prowess stems not from police training or even the art of deduction, but through her long-studied observations of human behavior. She's able to apply any analogy from her everyday experience, as mundane as they may be, to a criminal investigation. So the body in the library is just one of many cases, see novels, in which she works this particular magic. Back to the case. A connection is made to a young woman matching the deceased description. One Basil Blake is brought up, a young resident of St. Mary's Mead and the son of one of Dolly Bantry's friends. He works in London for the movie industry as a set decorator and returns only on weekends and is known for being a troublemaker. More importantly, he is known for carrying on with a platinum blonde. Did I mention he works in the movies, that modern-day Babylon? So obviously he is the prime suspect. The town voraciously gossips about him and the young blonde often seen in his company, what with her sexed-up attitude and tanning outside Blake's cottage in practically her underwear. Scandalous. Shame the girl is dead and all, though. Not to mention Colonel Bantry isn't fond of Blake either. Again, prime suspect material. Sin begets sin. Open and shut case, right? Well, they find Blake at his home having a row with said peroxide blonde girlfriend, who was very much there and very much alive. So that rules him out. The young rascal laughs and melts its face at the very idea of a young dead woman found in Colonel Bantry's home. No love lost between those two. And the young lady in question, Adina Lee, is living and breathing in front of them. So, again, a dead end. Back to square one, the police surmise that the window of the library could have been forced open by a chisel of some kind, and the body pushed through the window and deposited on the hearth rug. According to the ME, the time of death is anywhere between 10 p.m. and midnight yesterday evening. The victim is a virgin between the ages of 17 to 20 years old, and that she had been drugged and then strangled. The next move is to skim the missing persons bulletins for the county and surrounding area. There are several contestants for this grim prize, but the winner is clearly 18-year-old Ruby Keene a professional dancer working at the Majestic Hotel in nearby Danemouth. 
She had a white dress on, as well as silver sandals, had blue eyes, and platinum blonde hair. Melchett heads to Danemouth and interviews the manager of the Majestic immediately. The manager confirms Ruby Keane performed half a dance show yesterday, but did not return for the second half. They learn it was also Conway Jefferson, an elderly guest of the hotel, that reported the girl missing. The manager introduces them to Josephine Turner, Josie for short, the head dancer for the hotel's floor show, who is also Ruby Keane's cousin. The owner also confirms that Colonel Bantry, as well as Basil Blake, were guests of the hotel at some point. This puts Colonel Bantry higher on Melchett's suspect list, despite the fact of why the colonel would forget to dispose the body after he killed her. But such details are superfluous, as Melchett concocts a scheme. He has Josie Turner come to the county morgue to identify Ruby Keene's body. She does. It's Ruby, all right. I mean, her own cousin identified her, so it has to be. Melchett then brings Josie to Gossington Hall, right to the crime scene, where Miss Marple notices confusion and anger from Miss Turner, something that she cannot quite quantify, despite Josie's efforts to maintain a grim facade. Melchett also introduces Josie to Colonel Bantry, but there is no recognition on either end, so his scheme fizzles out. Another dead end. On to the next lead. Conway Jefferson, the man who reported Ruby Keene's disappearance, will have to be interviewed as well other possible witnesses at the Majestic Hotel. Dolly Bantry catches wind of this and eggs Miss Marple on to accompany her on a trip to the coast at Danemouth and take a room at the Majestic for a front seat to however all of this will unfold. No doubt Colonel Melchett and Inspector Slack are positively ecstatic at this prospect. So it's a location change to the Majestic. The prestige, the service, a lovely view of the sea. Here Melchett and Slack team up with Harper, Danemouth's own police superintendent. Conway Jefferson is an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair. He lost his legs in a tragic plane crash several years before, the same crash that took his wife, son, and daughter from him. His son-in-law and daughter-in-law, Mark Gaskill and Adelaide Jefferson, are his primary caregivers. Adelaide has a son, Peter from her first marriage. Both Mark and Adelaide are staying at the hotel. Neither are terribly upset that Ruby Keene is dead. We learn from Josie that she injured her ankle and called in her cousin Ruby, who had basic dance training despite her poor background, to replace Josie while she recovered from her injury. It was during this interval that Ruby got to know Conway Jefferson quite well. Not in that kind of way, but in a I'm-going-to-adopt-you-over-the-widows-of-my-children kind of way. Both in-laws of Conway's deceased children feel that Ruby was a gold digger that charmed her way into their father-in-law's affections. Successfully so, as Conway plans to, dis- plan to disinherit Mark and Adelaide and leave young Miss Keene with 50,000 pounds. Yes, that is a motive to kill someone, for sure. In terms of how son and daughter-in-law project their disenchantment with this decision, Adelaide is subtle about it, but Mark is outwardly gleeful that the girl is dead, despite him saying he's not. But he really is. Another witness interviewed is Raymond Starr. He is the Majestic tennis pro, as well as Josie and then Ruby's usual dance partner. We learn that he is making a go on Adelaide Jefferson, who is reticent to get married again because of her loyalty to Conway. The same Conway who is giving her inheritance away to a silly girl like Ruby Keene. There's that motive again. In regards to Adelaide, Starr's rival is Hugo McLean, a well-to-do old friend of Adelaide who wants to be more than just friends. Another guest that is interviewed is one George Bartlett, a shy introvert with a stutter who danced with Ruby briefly after the first show before she disappeared. He reported that his car had been stolen the morning after the murder. Melchett sets his sights on him as a suspect due to his awkwardness because back then any indication of being on the spectrum is tantamount to being a murderer. And yet, the missing car eventually is found, adding a complication to the case and perhaps the whole story. More on that later as the car hasn't been found yet. The police suspect that Ruby must have had a secret boyfriend, either Star or more likely Bartlett, and left the hotel after the first dance, never to return. 
Conway Jefferson summons his own investigator, Sir Henry Clithering, formerly of Scotland Yard and an old acquaintance of Miss Jane Marple. Clithering is excited to see Miss Marple, and the two bash out their theories together. Adelaide's son from her first marriage, young Peter Carmody, gives his own two cents, demonstrating to Marple that he found a fingernail in Ruby's room in the hotel. More theories? More evidence? But first, Clithering interviews Edwards, Conway Jefferson's loyal valley. Having only agreed to discuss details pertinent to the investigation, Edwards confirms Ruby's inheritance, that Conway is not a fan of his son-in-law Mark Goskell, and that Ruby was caught with a photograph of a handsome young man in her purse, despite her saying that she had no idea who put it there. Edwards relates that Conway Jefferson was not happy about this because of his opinion of the young man in the photograph. Hmm, who in town do we know that people have a low opinion of? We as readers are not told who that person is, though. But Miss Marple is already putting her facts together. Clithering takes a go at Mark Gaskell, inquiring about his financial situation. Gaskell admits to a bit of gambling, indicating money is hard to come by in his present situation. As for his alibi for the night of the murder, well, after dinner, he stepped outside to write some letters and take in the evening tide. As for Josie Turner, according to her testimony given to Melton and Slack earlier, she was there well into the first dance of the evening and afterwards. Airtight. The plot only thickens when Bartlett's car is found, still burning in Venn's quarry along with its supposed thief. A shoe and a button is the only tangible piece of evidence from the burned corpse. The shoe and button belongs to that of a girl guide, matching the missing person's bulletin of a 16-year-old Pamela Reeves, who was passed over by Slack and Melchett due to the fact that she was a girl guide and had brown hair, not platinum blonde. This puts poor George Bartlett into the crosshairs of the police again. S.I. Harper has the unpleasant task of informing the Reeves that their daughter is dead. A gold digger as young as Ruby is one thing, but a good girl like Pamela Reeves being killed as well? Well, that's the straw that breaks Harper's proverbial back. The madonna whore dichotomy could not be possibly more underlined here. But the police, pushed by circumstances and by clithering, now request Miss Marple's expertise on the case. So somewhat of a win. Miss Marple is invited to interview the group of people who last saw Pamela Reeves alive, her girl guide troop. None can remember anything other than Pamela telling them she was going into Danemouth to shop at Woolworths before she headed home on the bus to Medchester in time for dinner, her usual ritual. Their answer is fruitless to the investigation. The girls are dismissed, but Marble notices a tell from one of the girls, Florence Small. Florence shrinks under Marple's maternal yet condescending countenance and divulges being there when Pamela met a handsome man from London who worked with the film industry who was seeking out new acting talent and promising her an addition in Danemouth that very afternoon of her disappearance. Florence knew Pamela was not going to Woolworths, but instead was going to meet someone who was offering her a bright future, a future that ended with her as a burning ember in an automobile the following morning. Miss Marple departs the Majestic and returns to St. Mary's Mead. Under the pretense of asking for church donations, she visits the Blake Cottage and encounters the living platinum blonde at the door, Dina Lee. She is able to get Miss Lee to admit that she is actually Mrs. Blake in the eyes of the law. Dina is shocked, but Miss Marple figured it out what with all the rows the two were having around town. Too much like a married couple than that of a youthful sexual dalliance. As shameful as something like that would be back then. Miss Marple warns her that the police are coming to arrest her husband. I wonder what movie industry kicked a young rascal found a picture of himself in Ruby's purse. Blake shows up immediately after this revelation and Dina and Marple convince him to confess but not to killing Ruby. Note, returning home from a night of drinking, young Blake found Ruby's body dumped on his own hearth rug in front of his fireplace. 
Still intoxicated, he then snuck into the Bantry home and played the worst type of drunken practical joke imaginable. He left Ruby's body in the Bantry's library as a lark. This jest, unfortunately, has a bitter afterglow when the police show up and arrest him. But it's practically a feint as Marple, Clithering, along with Melchett and Harper, return to the Majestic. Miss Marple, recalling Dina Lee, referring to Somerset House when she confirmed her marriage with Basil Blake, heads there. Conway Jefferson is then instructed to act as bait. He is told to inform Mark Gaskell and Adelaide Jefferson that in lieu of Ruby's death, he will be leaving his fortune to a London school for young dancers, one that takes wayward young ladies in and gives them a purpose. He just has to meet with the solicitor tomorrow and all will be done. So like clockwork, someone climbs onto the balcony of Conway's hotel room and slips through the window, a needle syringe of poison at hand for the bedridden old gentleman. But Melchett, Harper, and Clithering suddenly reveal themselves, and the would-be murder is foiled. Now everything is laid out in true old-school mystery style before the Bantries and the reader. Peter Darmody's discovery of a nail in Ruby's room confirmed the existence of other nail clippings. Operative word clippings, not nails that were chewed off, which was the case of the hands on the body identified as Ruby Keene. A body identified by Ruby by her cousin, Josie Turner. It is clear that the body in the library was not that of Ruby Keene. It was Pamela Reeves. Only a blackened corpse with a girl guide shoe and a button is all that remains of Ruby Keene. A girl guide shoe and button that did not belong to her. Ruby was knocked out in her own room by one of the murderers after the first dance. Yes, murderers. Plural. Possibly drugged, enough so that she could not dance with George Bartlett. During Ruby's first dance, Pamela Reeves is led to the Majestic for her audition. She was given an audition all right. Her brown hair was dyed platinum blonde, her bitten fingernails varnished, her figure dressed in the white dress, and her feet placed in the silver sandals. She was drugged, probably in a soda given to her by one of the murderers when she arrived at the hotel. Sometime after, probably... Just after dinner, before Ruby started the first half of the dance show, Pamela's unconscious body was then driven to the seafront and then strangled with the sash of the dress. Her body was then taken to Basil Blake's cottage and dumped unceremoniously upon the hearth rug as Blake had said he had found her before he moved her elsewhere. As for Ruby, she was probably killed some time after she returned to her room, succumbing to the drugs in her system. Her body was dressed in Pamela Reed's clothes and then deposited into Bartlett's car and then driven to the quarry where it was set on fire. Two murdered girls, one killed for a motive and the other killed almost purposely in the hope that it would provide the two murderers with alibis. So who was this despicable duo? Why, it was Mark Gaskell and his wife, Josephine Nay Turner. Gaskell posed as Blake to lure Pamela to the hotel for the addition. Josie was always ambitious and probably planned to get Conway Jefferson's fortune until she hurt her ankle and then had to call in her cousin Ruby until Ruby quickly warmed her way into Conway's heart. Once it was clear Ruby was getting the money, Gaskell and Ruby married in secret, a fact lodged in the records of Somerset House, and schemed to get rid of Ruby so they would have a chance at the fortune. Blake, a regular at the Majestic, in Daymouth, and of course in St. Mary's Mead, was the perfect man to pin the murder on. Josie dressed and drugged Pamela. Instead of tending to his letters, Mark drove out with Pamela's body after dinner, strangled her, and then deposited her to the Blake cottage. Josie drugged her cousin, and after finding her in her room, passed out, killed her. So now we know why Marple went to Somerset House and why the police told Conway to inform Mark and Adelaide that he would be altering his will. To no one's surprise, except maybe us the reader, Josie was captured in the hotel room with a deadly syringe in her hand. And thus the Reeves and Ruby's family, with the exception of her cousin, of course, were given closure. As for Gaskell and Josie, the murderous couple will be ascending the gallows hand in hand. 
Basil Blake is vindicated, and Marple reminds everyone of how brave he was during the Blitz. Never judge a book by its cover, hmm? Last but not least, Colonel Bandry's reputation in the village is rightfully restored, all thanks to the keen observations of a kind old spinster. Okay, nice summary, buddy. Uh, that, that was good. That was fulsome. That gives listeners everything that they need to know. And now we're going to get into our pipes. This will be the last time we light our pipes for a couple of months, probably. Before Christmas, we'll be back with a brand new selection of text for everyone. Now, Josh, it's, it's hardly necessary for us to do this because we do it all the time. But uh, our pipes acronym is, uh, is kind of our bread and butter here on the show. It's what we use to review all of our texts. Why don't you uh, just remind the friendly listener of how it goes? Gladly. So as he said, PIPES is an acronym. P is for principal, the main character or characters. I is for investigation, which is the narrative, the story, the plot, the writing style. P is for perpetrators, i.e. the villains, the heavies, the thugs, the femme fatales, all that combined. E is for environs, which is the writing of the atmosphere, the general style, I suppose you could say and just locales that are used in the story as well. How are they described, either exterior or interior? Then we have S for supporting characters, and that's just our cast of characters in the story. Do they support the narrative? Are they just plot devices? Do they have more depth than what they should and making them stand out in this story? We rate all of these categories out of five, and we use that to create a final score based on these numbers anyways, of what we think of the book. It may actually not reflect, you know, of, of us enjoying the book or anything like that, but it's just sort of a, a metric that we use for the purposes of score taking and for fun. Yep, absolutely. So why don't we start then with the principal here? We have our detective, Miss Marple herself. Now, many listeners will be very familiar with Marple, but this is our first time talking about the character. So why don't you go first and... Uh, and uh, yeah, share your thoughts on on this this unique old lady. Yes, uh, I enjoy Miss Marple. She's fun. I found her a little thin in this story, and that is simply because I've just been introduced to her character. There is a superficiality to her. We're just kind of scratching the surface of her. She's intriguing to me, and I like her moxie. And you know, I think she's written well by Christie, warmly written by Christie, but. She still kind of comes across as an archetype, at least in this story anyways, but this is her fourth adventure. So even though she seems right, sort of a yeah. plot device to get the story story going, I haven't been officially really introduced to her on an emotional level. I'm just being, she, mm -hmm. To me, she's just another character in this story that is helping the investigation in her own way while Melchit and Slack do the other work. And yeah. even though Melchit and Slack don't solve the case, they are still doing competent work in sorting things out and, and laying the, the picture out for Marple to solve. But I still think she's right now to me, she's sort of like a plot device. She's like all detective characters are like this, right? They only really scratch the surface. I like her. Um, I find some aspects of her personality really interesting. I like She's a spinster, uh, which is something that you don't really expect in this mm -hmm. genre. Um, she's definitely respected in the community. And even grudgingly by Melchit, uh, but Harper and Danemouth seems to like her as well. He respects her, particularly Clithering on top of that. And yeah, uh, yeah. And how she uses, you know, the village analogies for human behavior and she applies it to the murder mystery. 
And even though that shows keen observational skills of someone in the upper middle class, you can tell that she's also classically educated um, with her, you know, her allusions to, uh, I forget the name of that king, what have you, but it had a lot to do with the relationship between Ruby and Conway. And despite those features about her that she likes, she has like this moxie, you know, that she's a very charming old lady in her own way and has, and is very witty as well, despite, you know, but not being like overly witty or mean, she provides a woman's perspective that the police, you know, has this patriarchal point of view, which is, which does not consider, you know, another perspective and that help. And, yeah, and because yeah. they don't have it, because they lack that, that maternal perspective on things or that feminine perspective on things, they are usually led astray by the murderers. And this is a clear example in this story. So I think that what Christy is saying is that someone like, Har- like Marple uses those life experiences that are not necessarily trained in police work to solve a murder mystery because deep down murder and the investigation of murder is very forensic. It's very psychological. And what is more psychological than battling wits, you know, in, in country manners in the upper middle class. Right. So. Yeah, totally. Now I did find that she, what made her a little bit interesting is that she has a condescending attitude to, you know, even though she's upper middle class, obviously, and she's reflecting the society of that time. But there's a condescending attitude that she has towards the maids, to lower class, and to children. There's an air of authority mm-hmm. of her. So she is somewhat oh, yeah, in a social yeah. position, and she and she's not afraid to hide it. Like she acts as if someone in her position would. And even though like there's she's a maternal aspect to her, like for example, when she's talking to one of the Girl Scouts after uh one second here. Yeah, Florence Small, because she was Pamela's friend, right? So mm-hmm. there's a kind of a, a condescending thing to her as well, but she also was able to get a, a aloof maternalism uh, to her character. So that made her stand out to me. Uh, but at the same time, like I still found that we're still scratching the surface. So overall, I give Marple in this story at least, uh, because of the interesting social dynamic that she presents and the fact that she's a woman in a man's world and how she holds herself to that, I really respect that about her. I really like how, you know, she's a very witty woman and she's not afraid to say what's on her mind and not afraid to challenge authority when she thinks it's wrong. At the same time, she functions as someone in her class, which is very believable. So I find her a very believable character in that fashion. I, I, want, I want more of her and I, I wish there was a little mm-hmm. more psychology presented to her, but I understand for the purposes of this particular story, that wasn't really yeah. necessary. So my feeling towards her right now is that she's probably a three, but I'm going to go with a final mark of three three and a half out of five for the principal. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same ballpark with you. And for similar reasons, I think that Marple is clever. Yeah. But she's clever in the background a good deal. Like she doesn't really take the lead in this story. And I know that's part of her MO, right? She sits back, she kind of crosses her fingers, she raises her eyebrows, and she just sort of plays the, the silly old lady while she's really computing everything around her. But She's, she's not really an active detective. And again, judging from this story, which is the only one we've got to go on here, um, there's not a lot of sniffing or snooping around. She does a little bit at the end with the whole canvas for the church thing. And I liked that, the agency she played there. And also when she's looking through the room, I guess. Um, but what she did with Dinah Lee was cool. So I guess a little shout out for that. Place. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But... And, and the fingernails thing, too, was a little bit of detective work in action. But, you know, everything else is kind of armchair detective. And 
She does interview, as you intimated, and she learns from Florence that Pamela has been approached by this dude who promised her a role in movies, right? And that does help her put things together a little bit more. Uh, But most of the time, she's just an old lady who kind of listens to stories that other people tell her. She nods and sighs and smiles and she probes in conversations. There's not a lot of action to her work, Josh, like in this book, at least. Yeah. And, and And I don't think it's fair to judge the Marple character on this story alone, nor will I. But... She doesn't do exactly. a heck of a lot in, in in this book. Like, I think I would have more respect for her, for herself, if she showed her hand a little bit more forcefully, you know, in ways other than like snobbish slut shaming. Like, she's got some really preconceived notions of Ruby. And I, I feel like that comes back to what you're saying about the class and the gender roles and all of that. Like, there is some slut shaming in this book, and it's not very nice. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable to read. No. And that kind of like, snootiness about well she's a woman that does this so of course this is what she's going to be like you know like i don't know judging marple on this adventure yes. alone it's it's a weak score buddy like the most intriguing bits of her approach for me were when she shared some of the village parallels that showed how her mind works you know like examples of uh Those analogies. yeah precedents for every kind of human behavior drawn and stored and you know uh, from her keen observation and her experience like I, I like that because in that way, she's like Holmes. We've seen it before, but more more reserved, you know, more a bit more reserved. I should go back uh, to page um, page 100, chapter 8. That's when she yeah. brings up the King Kofetra illusion. It's like King Kofetra and the beggar maid. If you're, re- if you're really rather a lonely, tired old man, and if perhaps your own family have been neglecting you, she paused for a second. Well, to befriend someone who will be overwhelmed with your magnificence, to put it rather melodramatically, but I hope you see what I mean. Well, that's much more interesting. It makes you feel a much greater person, a beneficent monarch. The recipient is more likely to be dazzled, and that, of course, is a pleasant feeling for you. She paused and said, Mr. Badger, you know, bought the girl in his shop some really fantastic presents, a diamond bracelet and, a most, and the most expensive radio gramophone. Took out a lot of his savings to do so. However, Mrs. Badger, who was a much more astute woman than poor Miss Harbottle, marriage, of course, helps, took the trouble to find out a few things. And when Mr. Badger discovered that the girl was carrying on with a very undesirable young man connected with the racecourses and had actually pawned the bracelet to give him the money, well, he was completely disgusted and the fair passed over quite safely. And he gave Mrs. Badger a diamond ring the following Christmas. Her pleasant, mm-hmm. shrewd eyes met Sir Henry's. He wondered if what she had been saying was intended as a hint. He said... Are you suggesting that if there had been a young man in Ruby Keene's life, my friend's attitude towards her might have altered? It probably would, yeah. you know. I dare say in a year or two, he might have liked to arrange for her marriage himself, though more likely he wouldn't. Gentlemen are usually ra- rather selfish. But I certainly think that if Ruby Keene had a young man, she'd have been careful to keep very quiet about it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, no. that, is, that is good. And it's, yeah. So again, she's casting these parallels to apply to the situation in... She's not only using classical narrative, like, for example, using an illusion of classical history, this King Kofetra or this ancient myth. She's also using, again, on top of that, she's layered it with an al- analogy from real life, the Badger story, and applying that to the situation as well. So being someone in her position where she notices relationship dynamics like this, she's applying this to a murder investigation. She's basically using forensic psychology to a murder mystery, which in a way is a lot like forensic profiling, something, you know, like... They do at the FBI mm-hmm. and stuff like that to find serial killers. And she's basically applying this knowledge in a very leisurely fashion because she's an old lady who just notices this stuff. If she really wanted yeah. to, she could probably get a degree in psychology and be able to do this for a living, but not back in 1940. 
No, not back in 1940s, right? And I, I like that example. It's a good one. So I was, I was with you, buddy. I went for a three overall on Marple score. Okay. I, I was going to give a three, but I just felt that we're kind of giving her a bit of a, because of the situation, we're taking a random story. Uh, like we're, mm-hmm. we're in the Marple cycle here. We're a couple of books in where her character's already been established already. I just didn't feel fair to, you know, to kind of tackle this character in, in an overly objective fashion. I want to show my subjectivity in this situation here and understand that, you know, this is not the first introduction of this character. The character is functioning as she should in this story. But I also mm-hmm. agree with you that maybe she should have had a little more interference. Like I found that her quality as like, I think one of her interesting qualities as an investigator is her reticence because she's not going to tell Melchit about the fingernails or anything like that, because right now yeah, they're yeah. following different leads and they're, they're just going to ign- probably ignore that point anyways, or just write it down when, cause they want to stop. They want to accomplish an objective, which is to catch the killer. And they want to do it in, in the usual fashions that they're used to the usual discipline that they're used to, to get that done. And so she holds back this information because she knows right now that there's no proof of it, that she doesn't have anything to back it up yet. She needs more facts. She needs more observation. And that's what she's mm-hmm. doing. It's a very Holmesian thing that she's doing, actually. Oh, it and is it, very like, And like Holmes, yeah. she doesn't reveal herself until the end. The only difference is that Holmes, maybe because he's a younger man in most of the stories, he's a little more proactive in, in, in the investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit more physical in, in up and being around, yeah. Well... What about the investigation, my man? What about the investigation? Well, I'll just start us out here. I like that the clues are easy to find on the reread. Like if you go back and and just skim over the outline of the story after you read the book, you can say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I understand why that led to that. She also like lays the red herrings very well. She does that whole thing that we talked about in the Fast Facts regarding how she sort of frames one character and then Mm-hmm. Wops that character at the very end to someone who you least think it is and that's yeah, kind of a very yeah. good formula for a mystery novel and she does that well here uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the writing style i found there's like an like a jane austen wit to her uh to her writing mm-hmm. and how she looks at social classes um can you cite can you overly... cite a moment or two of that sorry to interrupt just well, wonder if you could cite a tour a moment of that because it's certainly not the slut shaming although i'm sure jane austen wasn't above that in her own tone and you know word choice in, in, in her own kind of way, yeah. The best example, I would say, I'm just going to go to it right now, just a second. Yeah, so chapter four, really, the beginning of chapter four, and this okay. just totally picks up uh, on this to me anyways. St. Mary Mead was having the most exciting morning it had known for a long time. Miss Weatherby, a long-nosed, acidulated spinster, was the first to spread the intoxicating information. She dropped it in upon her friend and neighbor, Miss Hartnell. Forgive me coming so early, dear, but I thought perhaps you mightn't have heard the news. What news, demanded Miss Hartnell. She had a deep bass voice and visiting the poor indefatigably, however hard, they tried to avoid her ministrations. About the body in Colonel Bantry's library, a woman's body in Colonel Bantry's library. Yes, isn't it terrible? His poor wife, Miss Hartnell, tried to disguise her deep and ardent pleasure. <laughs> yes, indeed. I don't suppose she had any idea. Miss Hartnell observed censoriously. She thought too much about her garden and not enough about her husband. <laughs> you got to keep an eye on a man all the time, all the time, repeated Miss Hartnell fiercely. I know, I know. It's really too dreadful. I wonder what Jane Marple will say. Do you think she has knew anything about it? She's so sharp about these things. Jane Marple has gone up to Gossington. What? This morning? Yes, early, before breakfast. But really, I do think. Well, I mean, I think that is carrying things too far. We all know Jane likes to poke her nose into things, but I call this indecent. Oh, but Mrs. Bantry sent for her. 
Mrs. Bantry sent for her. Well, the car came with Muswell driving it. Dear me, how very peculiar. They were silent a minute or two digesting the news. Whose body, demanded Miss Hartnell. You know that dreadful woman who comes down with Basil Blake? That terrible peroxide blonde? Miss Hartnell was slightly behind the times. She had not yet advanced from peroxide to platinum. The, old, the one who lies about in the garden who practically nothing on? Yes, my dear. There she was on the hearth rug, strangled. But what do you mean at Gossington? Miss Weatherby nodded with infinite meaning. Then Colonel Bantry, too? Again, Miss Weatherby nodded. Oh, there was a pause <laughs> as the ladies savored his, this new addition to village scandal. What a wicked woman, trumpeted Miss Hartnell with righteous wrath. Quite, quite abandoned, I'm afraid. And Colonel Bantry, such a nice, quiet man. Miss Weatherby said zestfully, those quiet ones are often the worst. Jane Marple always says so. And then you have the response by uh, Mrs. Price Ridley, who was among yeah. the last to hear the news. And she also has her reaction. So you can just see, you know, the different people yeah. in the town spreading gossip around and stuff. And that line about right then and there where it says, Miss Hartnell try to disguise her deep art and ardent <laughs> yeah. pleasure. Like this to me is like, repression. Now, Austin, yeah. I don't, yeah, it's the repression of emotions and hiding who That's we really right. are and stuff. Yeah. And, and Jane Austen was really good at that comedy mm. of manners. And I think she was, she was nails it. She has that humor to her, to her style, I find, mm -hmm. but then she can mm -hmm. flip on a dime and be so grim as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. she balances it well. I must admit, though, that uh, I had marked that for the kind of grinding of the the rumor grist, but I hadn't I hadn't thought of it in terms of humor because it is it is very sort of insular humor. You're right; that's a good call out. Um, you got any more on the investigation? I feel like we have to talk about a couple of more features before we share our scores. So why don't you continue mm -hmm. with your your points? And I was going through, so the fact that the clues are laid really well and the characters are presented, which we'll go into when we talk about the supporting cast. The, there's there's a momentum to the case that I find that doesn't let up until the end. And that, of course, helps because, A, of the mystery of the murder, but then you have the second murder that occurs, and you have so many red herrings sprinkled throughout the story that you're just, you're, you're, you're automatically put into the, like, I'm solving a, a puzzle here while you're reading it. So you have that measure of entertainment while you're reading it, but you're also caught up into the story and to the world of the story that's being presented that there's a momentum, there's a suspense there that you're kind of digging as you read it. And, you know, we have those usual tropes of a mystery novel, the twists and the fake outs. Mm -hmm. And yet the, lo the logic is coherent and is presented in a comprehensible way with maybe one or two exceptions. And so everything I said there is positive, but I will say that what kind of makes me give it not full marks is there may be too many red herrings in the story. That's just my own personal feeling, but, and you pointed this out to me and I totally agree with you, but the motives for killing Ruby, it's sound, but the reason for killing two girls is a little murky and it's almost frivolous. You know, there's this idea of keeping the alibis for one murder and killing someone else. I get that, but there's just something there that just doesn't quite hold water. And I think you're going to spearhead this concept in a few moments, I dare say. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say too much about it, honestly, but because uh, I feel like I've already said it with you, and I'll certainly make the point. But yes, um, I was very confused upon first reading it as to why the second death was necessary. I, like yourself, came upon the same conclusions that oh, to to uh, to cover up the or to protect the alibis. But by conducting a second murder, then things grow more complex than they needed to, and if anything more strings for the police to latch on to. 
I, I didn't understand it. I mean, perhaps one of our listeners can email us at lightingpipes at gmail.com or, as you said a few a few moments ago, get in touch with us on the Instagram and explain to me why there needs to be the second killing in this story. I didn't understand it. I don't see how it serves the investigation. There are, I agree with you, buddy, I think there's maybe just a couple of red herrings too many in this one that takes us away from characterizing some of the interesting people in the story. But again, that's... Uh, that that's just a it's a minor a minor gripe but uh yeah i mean i would like to pick up on something you said though you mentioned how she moves from this sort of almost austin-esque humor to scenes of quite gritty realism and i would like to i'd like to pick up on what you said there and second it because i felt particularly josh that the scene with pamela's family was quite hellish like, I feel as though oh, it's even yeah. more contemporarily gritty than some crime stories might present today. Like, I can see TV shows and um, novels kind of glossing over that. But, I mean, I appreciate that Christie didn't shy away from showing a family in real distress. Like, it conveys her humanity, I think, a little bit as a writer. And even if it's not as too silly a word to use as a mother, but even her responsibility, you know, sort of like... When like I'm going here with the character, so I might as well be honest about how much a family grieves, right? Like I'm going to show you the mum lying on the couch crying and the wails as dad's trying to hold his face and his composure. You hear the wails from the back room. Like it's 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 really un uncomfortable and I think realistic. And I appreciate that there is that variety to the pen that Christie brings. It isn't just soft kind of country humor and. Uh, you know, uh, parlor murder. It is, it, it's real families at stake here too. And although Marple never gets too involved with those real families, the, um, the investigation does go there. And I found it quite refreshing, but not refreshing in like a, a nice, pleasant way. I found it refreshing in a realistic way that's made me respect what she's doing and want to take the frivolity of the story a little more seriously. Absolutely. I think she balances the comedy and the drama quite well. I think she's attending to have sort of a quirky sort of murder mystery backdrop, you know, with Miss Marple and old ladies solving crimes. And then you have, of course, the grim, the, na the grim nature of the crime itself, as you yeah. said, is not something that even some procedurals will touch on. I mean, there are, I can think of examples of procedurals that do touch on these reactions, you know, like, like uh, law and order special victims unit or, or some of the more prestige dramas that tackle these sort of things, movies like prisoners and, and whatnot, you know, child abduction is, or in child and the, and the death of a child is a terrible, terrible loss for a, for a family. Right. I mean, all that work and love and everything put into it and, and, and soul put into raising a child mm -hmm. and everything, and then have that snuffed out just like that by two mm -hmm. bastards. Yeah. It just seems, you know, like it's, it's, it's devastating. And Christy was not afraid to convey that emotion in, in the pages. So I, I give her kudos for that, absolutely. And it, to me, it makes the story stronger than initially than what it should be, right? And that's why I gave her, I didn't give full marks for this investigation, but I gave it a four out of five because I found the story very well written in, in, for the majority of it. And I liked how she was able to balance humor and drama and have these human moments in there that really stand out to make the, to make the story not just enjoyable as an entertainment, but also... It, it just seems like to me, like I understand, you know, why Christie is the big name that she is just by reading mm -hmm. this book alone. And in, mm -hmm. even though we have sort of a very thin portrayal of Miss Marple in this story, uh, the story that Christie has written overall 
Merce Marple is just a functioning element in it. And overall, the story itself, you know, it, 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 it moved me in a way that I didn't think it would. So again, kudos to Agatha Christie for doing so. Nice one. Yeah, I was a, just a shade below you with a three and a half. The only thing I would add to what we've already said about the investigation is that the family dynamic with Conway Jefferson is really, really unique. Like the plane crash that killed both of his children and, and injured himself. Left and injured him, crippled him, yeah. Yeah, left their spouses, both widowers, and caring yes. for their father-in-law. Like, he took care of them financially. But an unlikely situation then turns immediately into potential murder motive when standing to inherit yes. a lot more. This new girl comes in on the territory and gets guardianship away from Conway. Like, this is a really interesting concept. And sure, it's unlikely, but I don't think it's out with the realm of possibility at all. And, you know, the, a family tragedy could kind of precipitate uh, this way. You know what I mean? I think that it's it's really interesting, really clever on her part. And uh, yeah, I, w I went three and a half, but maybe leaning more towards the four on, you know, on good merit. But I'll stick with the three and a half. But uh, I did I did enjoy That's the fine. story. But yeah, that the two killings thing did bother me. And it's hanging over the story, I think, as an unnecessary complication. Um, it doesn't add anything to the to the plot to me. Well, let's Let's broach that for a moment. And, uh, you know, I, th I think it would be remiss if we didn't do this for our <clears> listeners. <throat> the reason why the second girl was killed is because of protecting the alibi. Now, to me, when they kill Ruby, the thing is, is that they don't want the blame to get onto them. They want an alibi and they also don't want any connection to them whatsoever. Now, the best way to do that, because they know they need to kill Ruby because she got in way of the inheritance that Josie was trying to get from Conway, right? So yes. we know... And Mark, of course. So we know, right? We know that they're going to uh, kill Ruby for that reason. But they also want to distance themselves from the murder the best way possible. And that to them is to frame Basil Blake for the murder, who is someone the community would would, would not uh, hesitate to blame for something like this. If, you know, public opinion, the court of public opinion would condemn him immediately just based on his personality, right? He's, you know, mm -hmm. like he's part of that whole slut shame thing you talked about. He is an actor. He works in London and he's an actor connected to Hollywood, which is which was known for then being a thing of immorality at the time. And we know what Agatha Christie thinks about Hollywood based on, you know, the quote that I mentioned earlier on in the episode. So I think that the plan to, to they wanted to frame Basil Blake for the murder. So they need to drop Ruby's body off at Basil Blake's house, right? And of course, mm -hmm. Basil Blake upends everything by dropping the body drunkenly off at the Bantries instead. That was the one thing they didn't anticipate. So the thing is, they could just kill Ruby and then bury her body and burn it and burn it somewhere. And then it would be discovered and then they would be found out and they would, they would somehow connect back to them a lot quicker. But by having the second murder, it creates another alibi for them. And at the same time, they also have the framing on Billy of uh, Basil Blake on top of that. So I think is is the reason why is because they're framing Basil Blake. That's why they were able to put on a second murder so they could create themselves not just an alibi, but a distancing from the murder as well by framing Basil Blake. I don't know if I'm on the right path there, but it seems to me that's kind of their logic. It's weird because I accepted it while I was reading it. But then when you pointed it out, now I just can't, I can't stop thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't understand still, like, how George Bartlett's car and the body that's supposed to be Pamela, the 
Girl Scout. I just don't understand how that frames Basil Blake. It doesn't make any sense to me. George Bartlett's car, and like, I don't get it. Well, Basil Blake was at the Majestic at some point, right? They do mention that. So he could have stolen George Bartlett's car to get rid of the body. Yeah, but so could but anybody that, have. So could fucking yeah. anybody have. Like, Yeah, I think it's Christie's intention that they were also going to frame uh, Bartlett for her murder. That might have been like okay. a, a plan. I don't I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, this one's yeah. got us. Like Scott is a an English teacher. So he'll notice these things a lot better than I will. Like when I read a book, I'm being treated by an author with a story. I'm entertained. So sometimes I can be a little dense. And so I tend to sometimes <laughs> miss these true. little things. Well, no, what it is is that I don't look at things analytically when I read a story. I read for entertainment. And if I'm not being analytic when I'm reading a story, or if I'm or if I'm distracted by something else going on in the story, and then, you know, like and you're emotionally caught up in the story about the two murders and you want these two people brought to justice and all this, then you're going to kind of just get focused on the anger that you feel towards these two people for what they've done and not understand as to why they did it. Right. And then what you're doing then is you're actually questioning the writing itself here. And Christy was basically, was she simply trying to like make the murderers look doubly awful by doing this? Is that what her goal was? Or does she not realize in the end that there was some holes in this story that why they needed to kill Pamela and Mm. yeah. Or why they needed to switch the bodies in the first place. Yeah. Like the switching of the bodies as well. Fuck me. Like it was just, I I, I didn't get that part of it. And it seemed, it seemed so big a part that I needed to get because it was such a big gesture on the part of Mark and Josie that I felt like I was continuously missing something. But if it was a straight ahead murder and cover up uh, and with the framing job, Okay, I get it. But why did she even have to come into it? Was it to flush out the book? Was it to stretch it from the the, the short story length into something more equating of a novella? Like, I just didn't understand it. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not bashing it too heavily for it. And I do feel like we've maybe spoken enough about it. But it is, yeah. buddy, it, it is a good bridge into Mark and Josie. So why don't we move into the perpetrators? Uh, I don't have a lot to say on these yeah. two. I gave them a three and a half, okay? Secretly married... They didn't like the thought or the likelihood of Ruby being adopted by Jefferson and then being recipient to his wealth upon death. If Mark had moved on away from Jefferson and into a, like a life of his own with a new woman, then he'd almost certainly be cut out of inheritance. So I understand the motive. Gaskell had gambling problems. Josie had just kind of envy, <laughs> envy problems and money lust, I guess. But so I can I can understand the raw the raw motive here and the emotion that would have driven that vehicle but eh, whatever i mean they were fun characters they were well fleshed out um i just thought the complication with the extra killing was uh, was just a bit too much for me but i enjoyed them and yeah I, I thought there was some red herrings you're also thinking maybe george bartlett is not quite as innocent and and buffooned as he you know, as he's presented. And also Raymond Starr, you know, that Lothario, maybe there's something here. But Basil Blake, I knew, set up as the villain at the beginning, wasn't going to be. So I was never really worried about that. But uh, He was framed few... by the narrative, right? Exactly, framed by the narrative, absolutely. And that and that's what uh, Christie did so well. But we knew that he wasn't going to, uh, to be the guy at the end of it all. Anyway, three and a half for me for perpetrators. That's really all I want to say about them. Um, if you have something more to add, uh, go ahead if you want. But uh, they were well written. Um, but I felt that their motive a little little too complex with the cover up and the the second killing uh, alibi game. Three and a half for me. Yeah, three and a half for me as well. 
I've completely bought their motives and what they did. Uh, yeah. They're definitely despicable people. Um, oh, yeah. It's even worse than just like, Josie didn't even need to involve her cousin, but like she's the one who brought her cousin into this. That's right. Yeah. She and then that, yeah. like, like she, like she actually just, the, the idea of it is herself is like, I can just imagine, you know, Ruby's mother meeting her in prison. Like, what the fuck did you do? What the fuck is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like you lured her out here and then you killed her. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the reason why Josie got jealous is because she brought Ruby herself into the situation. Like to me that Josie is not just, you know, someone who is needs money or is, or is desperate or greedy or anything. Like that's just, uh, that's just something else. I, I just can't like, get my mind around it. You know, I just can't like get my like mind around evil. it. it. Yeah. Like the story suggests that they're going to be hanged. So, you know, mm-hmm. good. It does. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, they got under my skin as, as villains, particularly Josie more so than anything. Mark was the usual, uh, you know, reckless rake gambler type who would do anything for money. And, you know, I was not surprised that he was the strangler either in the end too. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then they murder another girl. They were so committed on making sure there'd be no blame whatsoever that they wanted to cast the police in all different directions. George Bartlett, uh, the switching the bodies, doing everything to keep the blame away from them so they could get away scot-free with the inheritance so they would not be considered in any way suspect for the investigation. And that's what they worked on. And they felt that killing another person, they didn't even mm-hmm. think it through. They're like, yeah, we can do that. This could possibly okay. work. Like, I'll meet they you never there. Went to, I'll meet you there. They never went. Yeah, like it was a drastic decision that they made. They did not think it through because in the end, it backfired on them terribly, as mm-hmm. we know, when, mm-hmm. uh, when Basil dropped the body off at the Bantries. So I don't know, but again, their like their motives were clear. They weren't entertaining villains, despicable villains. But at the same time, th- there's a little bit of convolution in how they plan their investigation. I kind of wanted it maybe more ham-fisted to me that they're sloppy what they were doing. And this was a desperate act by two people, but that would require fleshing them out a little bit and then working in desperation with the scheme that they're doing. Like. Right. If for some particular reason, like some, but of course, because we don't get that because we're solving a mystery. So we're not going to see the perspective of Josie and Mark in the end. All we do is we see them get captured yeah. and that, and that's it. There's no denouement with their characters. Like there's no scene of them going like, you know, well, at first I thought it was a good idea, but then, you know, or, or something like that, you know, there's, we don't get any scene or any closure with their characters. So I, mm-hmm. that was a bit of a miss for me as well, but I understand why there wasn't in terms of, the efficiency of the story, the economy of the storytelling, but still I'm going for three and a half for the perpetrators. Okay. Yep. Uh, in terms of environs, the locations, this is, this is one thing that Christie, at least in this book, doesn't really revel in. She's not a writer, at least based no. on this book that seems to really want to build the world. Like the rural environments around the Bantry's property. Yeah. They're nicely enough rendered, I suppose, but there's not a lot of this story, Josh, that's set there or in St. Mary's Mead for that matter. So it's a really tough one to judge how she does it, but you know, the palette, the colors she uses, the descriptive um, kind of landscape that she, that she does. Uh, the majestic hotel in Danemouth is nice enough, I suppose, but it isn't unique. It's not manufactured in, in such a way that that it becomes key to the story like a, a little about the entrances and fire escapes and viewpoints like that becomes important to placement of alibis and such but for the most part this is just a pretty normal hotel um this particular feature the, the environs for this book it, it isn't a high point of the read uh, nor of christie's style like she doesn't seem too interested in making places come to life as much as she does people come to life and, and again i'm just Yes. Just judging on this story. So I went for a three 
uh, for the body in the library environment. Did you go a little higher or a mm. bit the same or what? I went lower, actually. I gave it two and a half. Okay. I passed right. it. Fair, fair enough. Barely. Fair enough. I think maybe it could go to a three if possible, but the situation is that I wouldn't be surprised if we read the first Marple story that there is probably a well given description of Mary, of St. Mary's Mead and, mm-hmm. the, and, and the surrounding countryside. I'm sure she put all of that probably in that first novel. I'm just guessing. But because we're in the fourth book of a series, she's just being economical and she's just bouncing back and forth to familiar places that we already know. Yeah. Like I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if some of those people that, that that's mentioned in, in the section that I read, you know, Miss Hartnell and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if those characters have already appeared in other novels. And yeah, many of them are recurring as, characters. Yeah. Exactly. So I felt that we were thrown in media res here. And I think she's already probably established this place, but we're just there to pick up just like the locked room mystery feel of of this particular story. We're jumping from exterior to interior locales Uh most of the time, a lot of conversations in room. Everything takes a backseat to the plot and the dialogue. So there's not much here to say. It's rudimentary. It's where people live, where they are currently, where the murder happened, and details are specific only when they need to be. Yeah. I'm going to sit on that as two and a half yeah. of the environs. I think that's a fair score, buddy. I don't think um, you got to feel either bit bad about that. And although we are saying, and we're kind of using it as a crutch, that this is the only one we're judging Marple by, this is the only story we're judging Marple by so far, let's be honest, too. Like, not everybody who picks up this book is going to start and think, oh, this is the fourth one. I've read the previous three. No, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of people that just pick this book up because they like the sound of it. They think it might be interesting. And based on that one reading, this is not a great story for environment. And that's just the way it is. Like, if this is your only touch of Agatha Christie, you're not going to give it a high score for the way environments and locations are rendered. You're just, you're just not. So you might exactly. be right. You might be right. St. Mary Mead may be better. Um, rendered elsewhere anyway secondary characters though i'll I'll say this for you buddy this is the strength of the story for me um the cast Mm. is what makes this story readable and really interesting sir henry clithering conway jefferson i mean a, a friendly honest very wealthy invalid you know that's cool in itself but he hangs out at the majestic he takes ruby under his wing you know wants to adopt her doting he's a very doting guy he draws the envy of his son-in-law and that secret wife josie sir arthur and dolly bantry they're pretty funny adelaide jefferson conway's carer you know she's a daughter-in-law but has her own little red herring villainy too which which is interesting in the story she gets tired of looking after him but she's committed briefly seen as a suspect for ruby's death for the the money that she stood to inherit but then of course there's ruby who's the victim uh, well-written, interesting figure, believable. Pamela Reeves, also a victim, was very believable. She, and so far, she gets caught up in the belief that maybe they'll make a star of her. Inspector Slack, Basil Blake, yeah. um, like like you were saying, we've spoken about them. Raymond Starr, this dancer and tennis pro, he's quite quite fun. Like the cast of characters is good. Even George Bartlett, he's only got a few scenes, but he's an awkward dude. You know, the last dance partner that Ruby mm-hmm. had, and all of that. Like to me, the secondary characters in this story really shine and i went for a 4.5 i was really really impressed really oh, wow. really impressed and i would like to read more if these guys show up again in saint mary mead i'd like to read more because i think there's a lot more that arthur and dolly bantry have to offer and i know that a few of these characters are recurring characters henry clithering i thought was just great i like 
I like the to and fro he yes. has with uh, Marple. They were more interesting to me than the principal uh, and any other feature in the story. So I do think that anyone picking up Body in the yeah. Library will enjoy reading the secondary characters. I went high on that with a 4.5. I was high. I gave it a four. Um, okay. All these characters, they serve the plot. They provide moments of intrigue, suspense, relatability, and humor. And for me, they ran the gamut of emotions that I should feel. They're wittingly sketched out, but for some reason, well, it's not for some reason. I can define it. There is a superficiality to them because they are these pristine chess pieces. They're pawns to play in Christie's narrative. So that does stand out to you. But because they're given believable dialogue and function that realistically enough for the story, and they mm -hmm. provide a sense of atmosphere that the environs did not in terms of writing, <laughs> I, I think they worked out wonderfully. And it's a story in concert with a rich supporting cast that gets the job done in this work. And that's really how I feel about the characters in here. They were just wonderful to read. And it did more world building than the, the descriptive writing in Christie's story, in my opinion. And they mm -hmm. helped tell the story. And Christie does this really well. And that, to me, also is how, again, she balances humor and drama. Because with these characters, she gives them such humanity that you're able to feel that spectrum of emotions from each of them and you're able mm. to feel that as a reader so i'm going to stay at my four but i respect your four and a half absolutely well buddy we are close here our indices report that uh, i was at a 17.5 and you at a 17 so i like this one just a little bit more than you but a, a good passing score for body in the library um i think we need to read a few more marples though before we really know the character and maybe we do now go back to one of those earlier ones. Uh, but uh, if listeners want to encourage us in a direction for some of our upcoming shows as to which Marple we could explore next, by all means, get in touch with us at lightingpipes at gmail.com or talk to us on our Instagram. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. But uh, that, that's, that's pretty good. I, th I think that's a fair outing for Agatha Christie and a first touch, huh? I, I absolutely agree. I really did enjoy this book. I enjoy the world of Agatha Christie, of Miss Marple, St. Mary's Mead, and the characters. I am definitely um, looking forward to reading the next Agatha Christie novel, whether it's going to be another Marple or it's going to be maybe even a Hercule Poirot. I would be really interested to see her style in regards to description and atmosphier conveyed in either Murder on the Orient Express or Death on the Nile, because we know that she's been to those places. She's lived those. She's lived in those places She's been on the Orient Express. She's done. She went on digs in Egypt, as we talked about. So maybe that will give a little bit of atmosphere in those stories than she did in this one. That will make it a deeper read for us. So I'm looking forward to mm. seeing if that's the case. If Christy branches out in different styles with her other titles. Yeah, for sure. It'll be uh, be good to explore one. And I do know that Death on the Nile is a book that we originally had set out for this season. So when we come back from our hiatus, maybe uh, after a couple of titles, we can, we can crack on with that maybe sometime early in the new year. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. And, yeah, yeah. So so with Agatha Christie done, as, as we talked about earlier, there's going to be a bit of a hiatus. There's two or three titles that we're looking at that we're going to discuss amongst ourselves. And and uh, maybe we can tease them on Instagram, those ideas, and maybe you can decide which ones you like us to do. Or we could just arbitrarily pick one if we feel like it. I mean, it's up to us, right? But still. It is. Uh, it's entirely it up to us. Mm -hmm. It could be fun. It could be fun. In the meantime, I'm going to be putting out another uh, film noir, another Lighting the Pipes noir. As, as I mentioned earlier, The Blue Dahlia is now currently out for your podcasting pleasure. So please check that out if you want to delve more into the world of film noir. And I'll be coming up with further editions of that uh, in the next month or two. 
Superb. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for checking out this episode of Lighten the Pipes. We hope you are doing well. Uh, we, we hope you've enjoyed it and that uh, you'll enjoy what you're going to crack the covers on next. Enjoy your reading, everyone. We'll see you back here on Lighting the Pipes in just a little while, just in time for the holiday season. <laughs> Take, Take care. care.